Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Find Your Sauce. So today we have Randy Wells with us all the way from Oakland. A little bit back on Randy. He's led the art direction for print, digital, and online advertising for multiple clothing labels in the past. Then Randy decided to become the founder of his own full-service marketing agency for about five years. After that, he became a product manager at EA, which is pretty cool because I, I grew up playing all of the EA games. So very excited to talk to someone that's actually been in that company. Then Randy jumped ship and he became a marketing manager across different organizations from Intuit to Salesforce. And then he even ran the partnership strategy at San Fran Giants. Now, Randy's been running his own clothing brand called Rockridge, based in Oakland. It's been around for eight years. They just recently opened up their own shop. and the thing about the thing I found very interesting about Randy's approach with the shop is that it's not just about the product, it's about creating an experience and about creating a community-led in-person experience through hosting events to create a like-minded third place for creatives and entrepreneurs to connect. So Randy, welcome to today's episode. Excited to have you here. Man, thanks for having me here. Uh that's a, a great introduction that I need to steal from myself. <laughs> I'll send you, I'll send you my prep notes. <laughs> <laughs> so run the year story. We were chatting about it just before we got on, the, on this call today. What made you want to launch a store eight years after creating your brand? Like why now? Ooh, good questions. I think strategically from a business standpoint, I always recognize that a challenge, especially when you're in men's apparel in particular, that there's only so much of a story that you can tell about your brand when you're just online. And I think over the last couple of years, even being online, it's just like what that experience has become has been more of a transactional experience, which hasn't given me a lot of opportunity to really sort of be able to talk about the brand with a lot more depth. And so having a retail space not only gave us the opportunity to be able to tell that story, but then it also gives us the opportunity to be able to execute other parts of the brand that we wanted to deliver on when it comes to experience and kind of supporting our customer in a more authentic way. Uh, and then the last thing I'll point out is, and this is sort of an observation to the Bay Area, but my point of view is just like retail has become like just really uninspiring and stale. And I think as a city that is known for innovation and technology, that that innovation and technology has been used more to promote efficiency and a transactional relationship between customers and retailers. And so now I think that what has become missing is this sense of like culture and connection, which I think the community in the Bay Area so desperately needs. And so I wanted to create a retail space that put a priority on that as opposed to buying some apparel as quickly as possible. Makes sense. And do you feel like after COVID, that kind of sparked this need for the change in retail? Like it's been so stagnant, traditional for so many years. It's needed this revamp. Did you get that type of intuition before starting this or? Yeah, I mean, I think the intuition was always there, but I think COVID definitely sort of, I think, created this, uh, this internal reset in terms of what people want. And again, it's just like where I think technology makes things a lot easier uh, to be able to 
facilitate life. But I think at the core of the human experience is this sense of like connection and is this sense of community. And I think one step sort of getting past COVID is how do you create more community even in retail spaces? And I think there's just been a slow adoption to that in the Bay Area because I think in a large part, um, I think vendors and store owners are, they don't know what to do. Mm. Uh, and so that combined with like, there's a lot of available real estate. Um, so it was also just easier to be able to like negotiate a fair lease um, and then kind of kick it off, sort of be like that early adopter in a space of like, let's sort of rethink what retail is and what retail could be. So for example, I'll tell you, it's like, I think one store that is no longer around but I sort of always draw a reference from is the Colette store in Paris, how it just emerged as like, not only just like a center of community, but also like a center of culture. And so part of my desire with our retail store with this brand as a whole is for Rockridge to kind of be this center of community and culture for entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. Got it. And how do you see that happening? Like community in implementing that into your store, actually, right? Because like you just said, it's not being done right now in the market as much. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you plan to implement community across your business ops? For yeah, so, yeah. So, so the first thing is, it's just like, like our mission is to like support and style the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders. And like, we clearly do that with the apparel and the product. But the other part that I see as like a big opportunity and what I experienced myself is, and I'm sure you do as well, like being an entrepreneur is like a very lonely journey. And, and it's, a, you know, it's just like, it's a lot of long days. It's a very operational thing. If anything, I feel like entrepreneurship is putting into practice what you might learn in business school. But a big part of that is like you don't really have a, a support system or community of other entrepreneurs that you can learn from, you can build from, you can connect with. And so one of the things that we wanted to use the retail space for was to have workshops and talks that are led by incubators, other entrepreneurs, other consultants in different areas of the business, different areas of one's business that can help entrepreneurs. Um, and some of that is just like talks with VCs about how to get access to capital, talks with local business incubators on like how to start a business, which can also give you the resources for like mentorship or capital. We'll have talks led by local banks on financial literacy or financial planning or the right financial products that you should take when you're starting your business, writing a business plan, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other side of it is also like just this wide open space for just like arts and culture. And so we have artists that are local to the Bay Area and musicians that do live shows like in the space. And so I think this sort of like unexpected kind of impromptu, you know, type of events are the things that I think sort of becomes the spark that brings like-minded people together that are creatives, that are entrepreneurs, that have big ideas. And there's like a central point that they can go to other than like Google or a library 
to be able to get the resources, the connection, the network, the et cetera, that they need to keep moving forward. I really like that. And the fact, well, when I looked at your store, it reminded me when I went to New York and I went to the hundreds store or I went into Supreme or Kit. And yep. this is the first time I've actually experienced retail in that type of way where you go to Kit store, there's an ice cream parlor, mm -hmm. right? Phenomenal experience that they're creating within their store. And the stuff like that changes everything. The thing I like about Supreme the best was that they're this billion dollar valuation company. They have security on the outside, just playing music, Nike mm -hmm. tracksuit down, graffiti uh, stickers all across the wall. They stuck to their roots of their culture and created, still create that same experience that they initially mm -hmm. started with, with the skateboard culture. And yep. I really like the fact that you're carrying on these principles into your store. I, I think a lot of people should be thinking about retail this way. And that leads to my next question. like. Did you test out pop-ups and like test out different type of additions in the past that kind of led to this moment of you opening up the store? Yeah, little bits. You know, in a lot of ways, like we've had our product carried locally in like other stores, and I would kind of observe what that experience was like. It's interesting because I think the biggest takeaway that I learned was the importance of men needing to touch the fabric. Mm -hmm. and it's like beautiful photography can do a lot. I was just like, but beautiful photography cannot replace someone like that. Just human connection of like touching the garment, looking at all of the details, like for yourself and then feeling more confident about making that transaction. So that was like a big learning. I think outside of it, I didn't, I didn't test the concept. What I believe is just like, I think this concept will work because it's so disruptive, but it attracts people that I know we're all sort of pulling from the same cultural references. So similar to like what you said in regards to Supreme and Keth, it's just like, like I know people that are like, they wear Ame Leon Dore and they shop at Keth when they go to New York or they're familiar with what those retail experiences look like. Um, for the life of me, I just never understood, I think with the exception of the hundreds and maybe uh, Huff, when Huff was around, that that sort of gallery, cultural-led type of shop had, hadn't popped up. So I think, you know, rather than waiting for somebody else to do this, it's like, uh, I'm going to plant that flag and, and we'll do it and see what happens. Why do you think it has a... They blew up. And why do you think like people just start focusing more on just on expanding the store for more products being in front of everyone instead of curating and experience? Like why hasn't that been a thing? Because it, it boggles my mind too, actually. Yeah. I, well, one thing I'll say is just that, you know, if you think about the companies that we mentioned, the Kiss, the Supremes, like those brand DNAs are rooted in like a authentic cultural expression. And I think the larger companies become, such as like your J. Cruz and your Gaps, et cetera, the more the culture becomes removed out of the marketing process. And so the way in which retail can be looked at is how do you maximize the dollar per square foot? And how do you prioritize increasing the AOV on each transaction? And so the metrics that the metrics and the merchandising strategy that sort of 
you know, our front and center when it comes to a store being productive, it crowds out the space for the marketing and the customer experience to really be able to come alive in like a unique and differentiated way. 100%. And the way when you say that, it reminds me of my one of my first jobs. I worked at DKNY on, on the retail storefront. Yeah. And it's like every hour you meet up with your manager. Okay, guys, this is your KPIs for the next hour. We need to hit these targets, right? We need to have these AOVs. And it's like, when Black Friday comes, we can reorganize the entire store to maximize the merchandise to be out in storefront. And those are the conversations that are being prioritized. So yeah. I think it just depends on the leadership team behind these corporations. They, if they value the experience they want to bring to their audience. And every store is different, right? Like not everyone's going to be supreme. Some are going to be a gap. It just depends on who you're serving, basically. Right. But I think, but I think to that point, it's like, I think the thing that customers want to appreciate is just that I think they want to walk into a, a store and it doesn't matter what the store is. You want to see a reflection on like, what is that brand experience? So like, and how does it show up in a cultural way? Mm -hmm. And it, it goes beyond the, let's just have beautiful photography or like, let's have just like these well-lit spaces. Like, I, I, honestly, I think what happened in San Francisco is Apple revolutionized what retail could be with their aesthetic, which is, which is part of their brand experience and people and other retailers started to copy it with the, with the desire of achieving the same financial outcomes. <laughs> and, and what ends up happening is, is that every store is the same, uh, Every store sort of has like this same similar aesthetic. It loses a sense of personality. It loses a sense of connection. And I just think that when you have an environment that is so overwhelmingly efficient to maximize transactions, it's actually harder to sell the good. And the good ends up becoming cheaper and cheaper because it becomes commoditized and it becomes more of a race to the bottom. Like, and I, I make this point to other people is that like the worst thing that Starbucks could ever do is allow people to order their drinks on the phone and then just show up to the store and pick it up. And I'm like, I didn't think there's times when that, I think there's a relevant use case for the person who's got an eight o'clock meeting and need to get to the office and they don't want to wait in line 45 minutes to get their drink. But I think the most important part of a coffee shop, and this is like the history of coffee shops that goes back to France was that coffee shops were always a place of conversation. It was always a place of communal social norms. And when you take technology and you kind of reduce that or you minimize it, then you, you, you have no sense of connection. And then it's like, you live in a city full of strangers. Makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. But coming to my mind is like someone in that board was like, hey, guys, we can become a bank. Let's just start our own Starbucks app. Get everyone to fund their money into their cards and we get this huge new revenue stream. But it's like, what's the downfall of that? It's like people are getting the actual Starbucks, Starbucks experience that they're really paying for with that premium cost. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a give and take for sure. So when it comes to even opening up a retail store, what? When are you ready to do it? Basically, like what 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 did you have to do, like check mark on your checklist? Okay, now is the time to open a retail store. And 
when should, when should someone not do it basically? Because some people are probably thinking, okay, am I pulling my brand? It's growing now, I'm getting local recognition, try open up shop. So I, I think a retail store generally does two things initially. Like, I think one, it's a, another, it is like another revenue channel. And two, it also serves as like your physical brand experience. I think in terms of when you're ready, like, I think, I think the, when you're ready part is when you sort of figured out like what your business model and what your product sort of strategy is going to be. And you can kind of map that out over two to three years. And I think what I would say, and generally what I do is like, I write a sort of a three-year business plan and then I write them and then I write one-year business plans because so many things can happen in the span of a year that, you know, how you get to that third year projection is going to change. Staying focused on that third year projection is the goal. So I think that's like one way in which I look at it from a framework standpoint. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, is that, and this was almost like, I think a very contrarian statement, but I think the best time to start a business or the best time to kind of start new ideas is when the macro environment is at its worst. And the reason why is because you actually have more leverage in the marketplace to negotiate more favorable terms across the board. So it was just like, I was able to negotiate a much more favorable lease and a much more favorable lease structure because there's so much inventory available that I can kind of pick and choose like where I want to go. Um, and I think the second thing was, uh, I definitely made sure that I had the right product in the store to ensure that it also best represents the brand. So it also allows me to carry more inventory, which also allows me to be able to negotiate the prices with the factory in a more favorable manner for me. And I saw online that your approach is to bring in the style from football clubs and like prep schools in LA into yep. your work. And, and you I, was on it today. I just updated that. I like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like, where did that come from? And and how are you actually implementing that into the designs? Yes, it's a good, so like I think the, the, the ultimate problem that we're solving is when you think about entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs, unless they really like fashion, generally they don't have time for it. It's, it's not something that's important to them, but at the same time, like what they generally want is a closet full, they want a closet full of staples that they can sort of interchangeably wear that are comfortable, that are easy to wear and that are stylish. And in some cases, I would say just stylish enough that they look relevant or that they look cool amongst their peers. And so to achieve that, I think me sort of autobiographically, I've always been, I've always gravitated towards uniforms. And what I think is like really interesting about uniforms is not the uniform itself, but it's sort of like the uniformity of like how a team looks or the uniformity of how like the Boy Scout looks. 
And, and so I think the references that I tend to pull from is sort of like these classic Americana staples that sort of really kind of started in like prep school, the button down shirt, the classic blazer, I think things of that nature, even like the Henley. And there's also like this through line when it comes to like club football in particular, because there's such a fanaticism around team sports. And and the collaboration, um, the teamwork, the shared vision, and all of those things, and so it's really bringing both of those together, and then designing a line with some of those philosophies in it. So the desired result is, if you're walking down the street and you're wearing a Rockridge shirt or a Rockridge beanie with this logo, and you see somebody else with the logo, like you can immediately recognize like that guy must be an entrepreneur or we must have like this shared vision or a shared mindset mm-hmm. to be able to do that in a way where we're kind of taking these classic Americana staples. And I wouldn't even say like updating them, but in some ways, like making them better than how they're made by competitors. I'll say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, and then also like enhancing them both in tailoring and silhouette as well as with material. And then, you know, what I also call is a little bit of a punk rock edge or a punk rock twist so that there's some youthfulness to it. Okay. And when it comes to these products and these uniforms that you try making with your collection, how do you think about how many SKUs to bring out inventory? how to maximize aov because that stuff still yep. doesn't matter right so like, yep. like what does the thought process go into a new drop coming forward oh man i love this question and i can start kick off of it we so we originally started with button down shirts and honestly the only reason why i started with button down shirts is because i think it was on a site like frank and oak and maybe like everlane and and there's one more untuck it which is a brand that i'm not very fond of um, and I, I thought they made shitty shirts and to myself, I was like, it can't be that hard to make a really good button down. Um, and that was sort of the genesis of it. And you kind of like fast forward into where we are today, just like with my merchandising strategy hat, what I set out to do is I, I wanted to be a waist up brand. It's just like, let's own everything from the waist up. Um, and those also tend to be complementary products that people buy together. So if you're buying a button-down shirt, you're most likely going to buy a t-shirt. If you buy a t-shirt, it's a good chance that you're also going to buy a sweatshirt or a jacket, et cetera. From a design standpoint, it's also easier to be able to tweak your size range across those categories as like, because the silhouette of a body type is like relatively the same. So it was easy to design around. And I wanted sort of the waist up shirt, sweater, jacket category to be the core pieces that we kind of earn our trust with our customers that allow us to expand into other areas so that we can start going head so we can start offering clothes that are head to toe okay guys you want to own the certain product categories first before trying expanding your SKUs. one point two yep. you find complementary products to what your main offering is to expand the aov too yep Okay. And then three, you know, like, which is another good thing when you're in the store, like people will tell you what they want and they do it through nonverbal cues as well as through like explicit verbal cues in a sense that they'll ask you about product that you don't have 
which is a sign as I hunt. Maybe I need to offer that, you know, or two, people explicitly ask you, you know, do you carry jackets? Do you carry scarves? Do you carry this? So even having a physical retail store also gives you like direct one-on-one -on -one feedback with your customer in terms of what they're looking for versus what you offer as well as what you could be offering in the future. Um, I think for us, the challenge that we have sort of going forward is, is sort of identifying like, what do we offer next? Like, if we know we do all of these, you know, sort of like tops like really well, like, what is that next thing? Like, should we be making blazers? Should we be making hats? Should we be making socks or jeans? And so that approach is in one way, like, you know, I think intuitively is just like, I just design the things that I want really well. And, and that works because you are your own target audience too, right? It's not like you're serving yeah. a Gen Z audience. You're serving an audience of yourself. As, as I go through your website and I see the models you use, even yourself, or you're in the content heavily yeah. as well, you're, you're creating products for yourself. I think that's sometimes the best approach when it comes to small business owners. Like, you know, there's an audience similar to yourself and you know yourself the best. Instead of investing mm -hmm. all this money in R&D, why not just look inwards? Because you know there's an audience that you could serve similar to you. I, I still believe that fashion is as much a art and a creative process as much as it is, it, is, it is a business one. It is far easier for me to, and it's the reason why I started a men's wear line, it is far easier to be able to design for myself and know that I can sell this aesthetic to someone else than it would be to start a women's line. Mm -hmm. Because I have no idea I mean, I'm married and I'm like, uh, how my wife shops and how other women shop and what they shop for or what they buy a lot of, I don't know. <laughs> yep. Oh, I can relate that 100% to that because Randy, when I dropped my first collection for my clothing brand, I made women's clothing too. So I did a women's tearaway and sports bra and then I did men's hoodie, joggers, and I did sleeve sleeveless tee at the time. And the women's stuff, did not do the best because I did not know the women's market as well. Mm -hmm. I found some trend that I wanted to capitalize on, which is a tearaway trend at the time, right? And I should just focus into one direction because and they're serving two audiences now. That's double the marketing budget now. Yep. That's double the production cost now. Yep. Right. So then going forward for my new collection now, I'm focusing just on menswear, right? Because that is where I know best. So stick mm -hmm. to what you know. So I, I agree yep. fully. Yeah, I mean, the other thing too is like, when you're a small business, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk that you can take, and you're not you're you're not going out of business per se, and so I know that we produce like, we only produce like a certain number of of units, so it's just like it's not even like we're producing a lot that is just like it might take us twice as long to sell it, but it's just like we know that we can sell it and sell through it and kind of move on. I think that, that it's funny because you asked this question just in terms of like how do you determine like your SKUs and like number of units, and it's like we are always really based on number of units really on just like the factories units the factory minimums and i also just look at the data of like what our sales penetration is and our sales volume is on a monthly basis and like my biggest fear is that i do not want to carry unnecessary inventory i do not want to carry so much inventory that i have to discount or i have to eventually just like throw the clothes away um in business talk, 
hearing inventory that you can't sell is just like it's cash that you can't convert into cash. <laughs> is it down the drain money? Yeah. Yeah. And so like one of the things that I share with like a lot of people, especially if they get into the apparel space, is like I don't care what you do, but the one thing you absolutely have to do is control your costs and control your cash flow. Is that if you can't be disciplined about those things, like you have no chance. A hundred percent. And do you have any advice when it comes to the the, the financial side of controlling your cash flow, you made a great point about managing inventory for sure. Is there anything else that might come to mind? Because I feel like sometimes entrepreneurs, especially in the clothing brand space, right? You could start getting momentum and then boom, one wrong mistake with manufacturing and you're, you're, you're screwed, right? And then you got to start from ground zero again, right? And there's so many other areas people make in the clothing brand industry that just brings them back to zero and then they just can't propel themselves back to the point where they were. So do you have any financial advice regarding that? I think the number one financial advice that I have, and that's one, well, there's like two, and there's that I'm pretty disciplined about is one, never grow faster than your cash flow. Two, you should always have, I think it's good to have more than one revenue stream to be able to sell your product. But also three, you should have more than one sort of resource of where you're getting capital from, whether it's in the form of investors or loans or rent or what have you. And then fourth, in the beginning, and I would say this is probably like the first three years of establishing your brand, only spend that which is necessary. Mm -hmm. Only spend that which is necessary. I can't tell you how many calls I've had in the last two weeks about people pitching me on like website redesigns. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm happy to do a consultation on like improving SEO. I was just like, but you're just not going to convince me that I need to spend seven thousand dollars because it's not a priority right now. It does the job. It, yeah, like if the data tells me that I'm losing business because of my user experience, or I'm missing out on sales because of the loading time, or how it's framed to mobile versus desktop, then like that's a conversation to be had. But it's just like if it doesn't show up in the data, like it's a vanity project. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I want to dive into your strategic partnership route for your brand and what your thought process is bringing that person onto your team to manage your strategic partnerships and what your strategy is behind it at a macro level, of course, and like mm -hmm. what you want from this, let's say in 2024. Yeah, I think the two things is, I think a, 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 bear, a, a mental barrier that I've always had for myself was almost like this fear of like hiring someone. And I think in many ways, I think that fear is like, you know, when you hire someone, it's just like you are kind of like somewhat responsible for like their livelihood. So like how you run the business, how you're paying people, all of those things, like definitely just takes on a bit more weight. Uh, but at the same time, I also recognize that there's only so many hours in a day and there's only so much that I can do. And the more that I have on my plate, the the quality of the output is not as good as it can be and i really kind of i'm really building this business around like the sort of philosophy of like subject matter experts is like i like to hire people who are like really focused on like a scope of work and they're really 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 good at it so that 
I don't have to manage it or micromanage it. I can sort of operate at this strategic level and then let that person go. Um, and what's that hiring process like for you? To like know that that person is a thought leader and they're not just like, you know, getting by the interviews, like they're actually, like they know their stuff. Yeah, right? I make it hard. Yeah, I, I make it hard. I mean, there's always like an initial like screening and call and, and resumes and all of that stuff. But ultimately, I tend to go through probably two or three rounds of interviews. Um, and I have people actually interview with other colleagues that are like a part of the business, but are not involved in a day to day business. And those people are a lot more, they're just as rigorous as I am. And I think what I tend to look for the most when I'm hiring somebody is their ability to be able to explain in detail how they have managed a project, how they've led a project, how they've initiated a project, and to be able to walk me through like every single step. And that question alone generally reveals like people who are like part of a team and were like kind of involved and like people who like really owned it. The other thing that I do is I ask people to bring like samples of their work. And the reason why I do that is because I generally provide feedback. I'm pretty harsh on the feedback. And that just allows me to sort of get a sense of how do they just react to feedback in general and whether or not they can take feedback to sort of operate at the standards to which I'm trying to build this company at. And then the last thing is like culture fit. And I really kind of focus that on like what kind of music you listen to, what are your pop cultural references. And the funny thing about that is like there really is no right or wrong answer, but I always find it funny when people try and convince me that they are familiar with something that I know that they're not familiar with. Like it's one of those things where it's like if I mentioned the Colette Paris store, it's just like either you know and you're like part of that world in that space or you don't. Yeah. Like, no real in between. And so when I find people that like don't know, isn't necessarily like uh they don't they don't get hired, but it is more they like it's it's okay for you to not know. It's more important for you to have the curiosity to know. And I think for me it's just like so much of this brand is pulling from cultural references that are existent or historical. And so if I gotta, if I have to spend more time explaining it, then like that's fine. I just need to know that. But at the same time, I also need to know that if I ask somebody to put together like a music playlist, that I trust the playlist that they're gonna put together. That I don't have to say like we should not have Taylor Swift on this yeah. playlist. Hundred percent, and I couldn't relate to this more because like I was actually having another podcast call a while back, and the person told me that they hire based on values, and the reason why because skills can always be taught, right? Yeah. Values and upbringing that you can't really change, but a person mm -hmm. that what matters so much, especially in the clothing brand space, like you said, it's it's a fine dance between art and business, and the art aspect is very probably on your upbringing as you as, as your childhood right and then mm -hmm. you, that caters into your brand and you need people that have gone through a similar experience so they could get the messaging you could get the brand the cultural references they know the jump on opportunities that are relevant like you said when you're hosting an event you also have to handle the music playlist for the event right and i think that's more important than hiring someone who has like 10 years of paid ad experience but yeah. do, you, do you know, could you do paid ads at least? And do you understand the cultural references and the messaging behind a brand? Like that matters way more 
than someone who just has the experience or technical skills. That could always be taught. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've recognized in hiring people is that as small as we are, like everybody is an extension of the brand and everybody is a brand ambassador of a brand. And I don't need them to be a copycat of me, but I do need them to be an authentic version of them that is aligned with the brand. One thing that has helped me and honestly be more efficient with the hiring process too is so for I'll put up a job posting on LinkedIn, right? And after I get all the applicants, whether it's 90, 200, whatever it is, it's a lot to comb through. So the people that qualify for next steps, I'll send them a questionnaire on type form. It'll be mm -hmm. 10 questions. Um, and then those fill out similar to what you said scenario-based questions, right? And how micro do they really go in the question and implementation, right? That's how you find out, like, did they, were just a coordinator on the project or were they really mm -hmm. leading it in the trenches of this? And then after that, I'll probably do like a scenario test or an, an assignment, right? And, and come back to an assignment because someone who really wants to be part of the brand, they'll, they'll go through the process. Yep. And that's one thing, even this is a, might not sound the best, but when I was applying for corporate jobs out of school, I wouldn't do that for a lot of companies because I did not want to work there. And yeah, I would just like, I'm, working, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to work there that bad. Yep. And, and that's cool, right? And so that's what I want to say. People, if you're not going to go through it, that's fine, right? But now at least I know that and I waste my time on a call. So yeah, I think interviewing is very important and just getting the process down right and getting the right people because that could really dilute your brand because they are brand ambassadors at the end of the day. I mean, the other thing too that I'll just like emphasize because I think it's like my just criticism of like, hiring in today's world is like building a business is like it's really hard and i think in a lot of ways it's just like i think there are people that like want to work at small cool places and but they also sort of have like uh, a corporate mindset that like this is Salesforce and Google where we have like free lunch and free drinks and all these things. <laughs> and I think what people like and there's like a site on the website that I'm putting out called like behind the scenes where I'm like, I think people really need to see that as just like I painted these blue walls like. We didn't hire painters to do it. It's just like I came in here every night for two days. I was just like and made sure that these walls were like painted because I think it just kind of reinforces that. I think when you're trying to do great things, there is a level of like detail and intentionality and like work ethic. And I think I'm always trying to find that sweet spot in a, in a new process of like, what are the right questions to ask? that can give me the most data and information so that the people that I'm hiring, I know that they have the work ethic that I'm gonna expect of them to do it. Because I think what a lot of people don't know is it's like at the, the stages where my business is at, like you do everything. Like everything is strategic. As I explained to my wife, I'm like, and everything is operational. As like, you gotta write the job description. You gotta post it, you gotta review it. You gotta schedule the callbacks. You gotta sit through all of the interviews. You gotta make a decision. And sometimes you have to do that in, in less time and less time than you'd like because the business is moving forward. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like there's a certain level to of how much attention and detail you put into a project where after you're you're not getting as much gains or benefits from being as detailed and attentive to certain things. And then do you feel like that sometimes as you being maybe a creative yourself, that's something you might go a little bit too much, like you should just dial back a little bit. Oh, what's the cost of that? 
I'm haunted by my eyes. Like I see every imperfection mm-hmm. and it really, it's really like, I don't necessarily think I articulate it all the time, but it's just like, like it bothers me when I see like shirts are like not wrinkled. It bothers me when I see that shirts are not, you know, folded. Right. It bothers me when I, can I use profanity on here? Yeah. Call that. yeah. Like, it bothers me when I see like designs fucked up mm-hmm. and it's just like, that's not the scale that I wanted that, uh, that I wanted that graphic printed at. Like, I'll give you an example. I was at my tailor yesterday having some labels like put on shirts as a mock-up to send to the, to the factory. Mm-hmm. And when I went to go pick them up, the lady handed me the shirt and I mean, looked at it and I was just like, it's wrong. She was just like, really? It's right. And I was just like, trust me, I designed the logo. It's not right. <laughs> And she's just like, oh, she's like, we got to turn it around. And I kind of gave her, I sort of gave her the trick of just like, you can look at it this way, you look at it that way. Like, it's always an arrow going to the left. And she's just like, oh, okay. But my point to that is, is like, I, the reason why I say that my eyes are um, haunted by my eyes is because like, I do see all of the imperfections and the business side of me has to sort of take stock and sort of make this rational decision, like how materially is this important to fix that I do it or I let it go because there are other larger or just more important priorities to focus on. And I just write it as a note and revisit it later. And I think that is just something that I just personally like struggle with reconciling. But um, you had a self-awareness though for it, right? And that's the important thing. And you know you're haunted by eyes and, and you know yeah. that you have to be conscious in those moments of, okay, is this worth my time right now or not? You have that framework you go through. Yeah, and the other part of it is, and I, and I think it's less like, is it worth my time? I think I try and see things through the eyes of the customer. So it's also like, will the customer notice this? Does the customer yeah. see this? And if they do see it, like what is most likely going to be the takeaway? And that's where I would just say, well, the reason why I say I'm haunted by my eyes is just because I'm like, uh, the average customer won't see 90% of what I do see. Um, and I know that, but on the other hand, what I also know is that like from the design to the mission, to the presentation of the product, to the presentation of the store, like each one of those sort of customer journey steps it reinforces a trust and it reinforces the validation of our price point. And so I think the thing that I'm always sensitive to is just like, I never want a customer to come in and question why we're doing what we're doing for the price that we're selling it at. And it's just like, I want people to come in and it's just like, even if it's a little more than what they expected, it's just like, they're also taking stock of just like, Ooh, man, the hand, the weight, oh man, the store, like this, that. It's like, the, the, for me, the customer journey is all about this discovery. And I'm a huge believer in that people notice these small things. Mm-hmm. They notice the intentionality. They don't necessarily notice the reason why behind it, but it's just like they do notice it. And I think that when they know that as a designer and entrepreneur, that 
you're not like just particular about the aesthetics for the sake of the aesthetics, but that you're actually particular about the details of the shop or the garment because it's all purposeful and it's all intentional, that there's a real genuine like quality and craftsmanship that they believe is behind it. And I think that's where there's always the balance of the art of fashion as well as like the business of selling it. Um, and I think for me, it's just like, like, I tend to reference like Louis Vuitton, just kind of the LVMH portfolio as a whole, in a sense that Louis Vuitton has psychologically programmed every customer to know that you're buying something that is so special, that is so well made, you can't find it anywhere else. You can only find it at a Louis Vuitton store. And that's why when you go into a Louis Vuitton store, when you buy something, even seeing the receipt being folded in the envelope and handed to you with two hands is an intentional detail that customers have come to expect. Yep, and that's campaign you get served, all these little things in the store, yeah. 100%. Yeah, and so for me, I want, and for me, this is where the retail store is different than online. You go online, you cruise around, cool, cool, cool. I've already bought something. I'm getting a shirt going on about my business. But when you come into the store, for me, the takeaway that I want the customer to have is not, I got this really cool shirt. It's more or less like, man, I went to this really cool space that was like immersive and it had this and it had that. And like the founder was there and we had like a really great conversation. And like, I really love what he's doing. And I got this really cool shirt or this really cool t-shirt, but you should go check it out for yourself. Like for me, it's just like, that's the customer journey that I'm like really focused on. It's that lifestyle first and as a product to back it up afterwards, but the product yeah, because be lifestyle. In, in a lot of ways, what I, what I kind of tell the team now is just like, if we execute the vision of the brand, then people will be attracted to us because of the vision and the mention and the product is the souvenir. I was just like to say, know that you're a part of it. I was like, when people and kids go to Coachella, I was just like, the reason why they buy the t-shirt is to signal to the friends who didn't go that they were there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And even when it goes back to your, your point about attention to detail, that, that there is a huge fine line. Well, fine dance, I want to say, between the art and the business side. Because, like, even right now, like, I'm getting these stickers made from overseas. And I've been going back and forth for the past four days between 0 0.14 millimeters thick or 0 0.316 millimeters thick. And it really comes down to that. It's like, okay, is the from the business standpoint, from the profit margin from this, is it worth spending a little bit more? And just make sure, no, I need a thickness to make sure I have the right quality, gives the right luxurious feel. Mm -hmm. and, but it's like, you got to know when to stop as well too and it's like you gotta have those conscious conversations with yourself about this and like but yeah it's it's amazing though because i feel like people do notice those little things i remember i did a behind the scenes like documentary for one of my campaign videos and when i was buying like like drinks and like cups for the for people who are just going to be there i was very intentional i need orange solo cups i don't want red i need orange solo cups mm -hmm. my brand main color is orange and i knew it'll be in the footage i know someone's going to point this out which people did point out right and they do notice yep. these small little things like oh, i saw yep. your orange cups in your video too i was like those things stay with people 
Yeah, and it's very important yep. to do include those tentative yep. things. These are these are the things that I think are brand building. And you know, in the beginning, I think the hardest thing about I think the hardest thing about starting anything is having to be consistent about it to the point that people start to actually embrace it. And, and once it's sort of been embraced and once it's been adopted, then you're just really maintaining it. But the hardest part is actually establishing it. And I remember in like the 70s, in the late 70s and 80s, like Nike still, Nike used to send out press releases, like phonetically spelling how Nike is meant to be pronounced. Because in Europe, they would call it Nike. <laughs> Right. Um, and they were referred to the swoosh as like the check mark. And I'm just like, for like 20, I'm like for 10, 15 years, like those dudes were sending out press releases where it's just like, it's, it's, it's called Nike, not Nike. And it's the swoosh, not the check mark. And it was because of the, the consistency of the branding that people started to say the name correctly and refer to the logo in the right way. That's a huge takeaway right there. Just be consistent. And there's <laughs> space. It's, it's going to be awkward sometimes, right? Because like, am I being trusted as this person or as this brand in this space yet? But it's like, you, you stick it out long enough, people will accept it. Man, there's a, there's a video. There's like a bunch of like sort of inspirational videos that I listen to on like YouTube. And there's always like this line from Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan's and Kobe Bryant's trainer. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. relentless is actually my, I'm getting every Christmas this year. I've it's been on hold too long. I got to read that one. It's a great book, but he talks about how like everybody wants to fit in, but it's the guy who stands out that is the one who's remembered. <laughs> and that always just reinforces to me that like it's okay to like walk alone and it's also okay to be authentically who you are and just do it consistently and eventually everyone will follow. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point to end this episode on. This is, it's been an amazing conversation. And I think me and you could keep going on and on. Yeah, we talked for another hour. <laughs> 100% we can. But tell me, where can everyone find you online? Oh, excuse me. Uh, I can be found at rockridgesf.com. And I'm going to put this out there for the rest of the world that if you go to the footer of our website, uh, there is a link called advising sessions. And if you, you can actually set up time with me on Calendly um, and whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person at the shop, I try to make myself available uh, for like 30 minute sessions to give people, I think, consulting design advice or even resources or or people that I know that can help them sort of move their idea forward. And that's amazing. It goes back to tying yourself to your mission and leading it founder-led. So yep. that's amazing. So everyone go check out his website and Randy, thank you for joining us. Everyone else, thanks for tuning in and talk to you soon. Cool.